Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Chapel Street Church South Street Campus on this New Year's Eve Sunday, last day of 2023. And a special welcome to those of you who may be uh, joining us from one of our other campuses, Kesslinger, Mill Creek, or North Aurora, because this is the only live service we have uh, today. The rest are online. So welcome. We're so glad you're here to join us. I do have a question for you as we begin. How many of you are planning on welcoming in the new year at midnight tonight? How many are going to be awake for that moment? All right. Not me. <laughs> we might make it to 11 to see the ball drop in New York City, but uh, not, I, I find that whole show depressing, so I don't think I'm going to do that. Probably be asleep by about 9.45. But anyway, but New Year will come with or without me. I can trust that anyway. So welcome here. We're glad you're here today. Just a little bit of church family news. Um, last weekend, we celebrated uh, Christmas Eve, uh, the coming of Christ into the world, uh, through 14 services over four campuses in two days. And we had over 5,200 people at those services, which is the first time we've ever seen that, that number, that response. And that's pretty remarkable considering a couple of years ago, uh, we were zero at Christmas Eve because of COVID. So we celebrate that. We're still waiting for final numbers on our Serve the World initiative. Um, I was hoping to be able to share some of that with you today, but they're still collecting information and they're still getting gifts in. So thank you so much if you participated in that, uh, that uh, initiative to bless uh, our partners throughout the world uh, next year, and we will let you know as soon as we know uh, that number. Next week, we begin a new series of uh, messages called Praying with Paul. We're going to be looking at uh, four prayers of Paul in the New Testament through the month of January, seeing how we can learn and be challenged in our own understanding of and practice of prayer. And for the month of January, we'll have several initiatives uh, focused around prayer. For example, one of the things that we'll do here at South Street is every Monday uh, in January, starting January 8th, we'll have a noontime prayer focus right here in the sanctuary uh, for anybody who's able to join us for that hour, the noontime hour. But we'll tell you more about that and a few other uh, initiatives we have planned uh, next week. So thank you for that. Will you now stand with me for our call to worship? The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. Indeed, the world is established, firm and secure. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. The seas have lifted up, Lord. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have lifted up their pounding waves. The great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your statutes, Lord, stand firm. Holiness adorns your house for endless days. As we um, take a moment in prayer as a church family, which we do every week here at South Street, a couple people I want you to be aware of that we have prayed for in recent weeks, but we continue to pray for. Uh, Bob Coster is recovering from hip surgery and moving to Michelson Center at the Homestead this week. So we'll keep in mind Bob and his wife, Claudia, during this time. And then uh, Karen Gustafson uh, called me yesterday to let me know that uh, her husband, Art, has been in placed in hospice care, now also at Michelson, and is uh, receiving no further treatment at this point. So we just ask you to be in prayer for Art and for Karen during these difficult days. Now, will you bow with me as we pray? Lord Jesus, we just lifted our voices to you in worship and praise. 
uh, the great hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns, and we sang the words, His glories now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring, and lives that death may die. And that's why we celebrated last weekend together here in our traditional celebration of Christmas Eve to celebrate you coming into the world, not just to give us a holiday, but to give us the promise that through you, we see the, the end of death. We see the end of the fear of death. We see the promise of eternal life through your cross and your resurrection. So we thank you for that. We worship you today for that. We praise you today for that great hope. So we give you thanksgiving and joy today in our worship. We thank you for the way you've blessed uh, this church family in this one local place to reach so many other families in our region. Uh, we, thank, we pray that, uh, that the ministry of your word and your truth will be not just uh, to celebrate a holiday time, but to build um, marriages and families and to build faith in young people so that they would know you and serve you uh, all the days of their lives. But we also know, Lord, this is not just a time of celebration. It's a time of struggle and pain and loss for many. Uh, we pray for Bob and Claudia as Bob uh, continues to recover from his recent surgery. We lift up Art to you and Karen as well and their whole family. Uh, you invite us to come to you with all our concerns and our needs. You teach us to pray for one another, and we want to do that and be faithful to that. We ask you always for your work in our lives and our bodies for healing and health because the life you give us is precious and is precious to you as well. But we also trust you with the eternal life that you have promised us. So today we ask you to remind Art and Karen and others who are wrestling with end-of-life issues that your presence, your peace, your comfort, and most of all, the great hope of a reunion with you, seeing you face to face would support and undergird all else and be the great hope that you give each one of us. And so we thank you for all those things. And we lift them up to you and thank you that we can pray in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Luke 8. Luke 8. We will be reading verses 40 through 56 this morning. But before we do, uh, in honor of the new year, I am going to ask you all four fill-in-the-blank trivia questions about 2023. And these questions, they will connect to the sermon and to the text, so they are not completely random. Um, but keep track of how many of these you get right. And if you came with someone today, see who gets more answers correct. So here we go. Four fill-in-the-blank trivia questions about 2023. Question one. The best-selling book on Amazon in 2023 was which book? Was it Spare by Prince Harry, Atomic Habits by James Clear, or The Very Hungry Caterpillar by Eric Carle? Which do you think? Spare, Atomic Habits, or The Very Hungry Caterpillar? Feel free to whisper your guess to the person next to you. Okay, once your guesses are in, the correct answer is Atomic Habits. Atomic Habits. Atomic Habits was number one. Spare came in at number two overall. And The Very Hungry Caterpillar, which was published all the way back in 1969, still managed to come in at number 13. 
that poor caterpillar has been starving for over 50 years now. <laughs> but it's led to some great book sales. So, okay, question two. The top grossing movie in 2023 was which movie? And this is, this is worldwide revenue, by the way. Worldwide revenue. Was it the Super Mario Bros. movie? Was it Oppenheimer or Barbie? Mario, Oppenheimer, or Barbie? Which movie had the highest total worldwide revenue this last year? Okay, once you get your guesses in, the correct answer is Barbie. Barbie at $1.4 billion in total revenue, just ahead of Mario with $1.3 billion in total revenue. I did not see Barbie, so I have absolutely no comment on that movie. Uh, but I did see Mario, and I enjoyed that one. So, Okay, question three, and this one is tough. This one is very difficult. The most purchased produce item in the United States in 2023 was which, which item? Was it banana, potato, or apple? Banana, potato, or apple? Okay, once your guesses are in, the correct answer is banana. Banana. <laughs> now, I'm not going to lie, I wish the correct answer was oranges, so that then I could say, orange you glad I didn't say banana. <laughs> but the data failed me this year, so. Okay, one more question about 2023, but before I ask this one, has anyone got all three answers correct so far? Wow. Like four people. Okay. <laughs> Amazing. You guys are 2023 historians. All right. Uh, question four. Here we go. Maybe just think your answer to this one. God's heart disposition toward you when he looks back on your 2023, let's say, performance, spiritually, relationally, is which emotion? Is he happy, disappointed, Frustrated, impressed, annoyed, proud, tolerant, disheartened, angry, apathetic, other. What do you think? And by the way, don't give a pre-programmed response here. I am asking, what is your gut feeling? Your gut feeling about how God feels about you especially when he looks back on your last year. Which emotion do you think he feels? Here's the good news. God has not left us to fill in the blanks about how he feels toward us. He has not left us to guess his heart disposition like the guessing game we just played. The good news of Christmas is not only that Jesus came to save us from sin and praise the Lord that he did, but also that he came to reveal God's heart toward us. John 1.18 and many other passages say that Jesus is the perfect and full revelation of God in the flesh. This means that if you want to be 100% certain of God's heart disposition toward you, if you want to set aside all guesswork about how God feels about you, look at Jesus. And that's exactly what we are going to do today in our time in Luke 8. In particular, here's my outline, and this is up on the screen. Today, we are going to look at three lies, three lies we are tempted to believe about God's heart disposition toward us, especially in seasons of suffering, 
And we'll see how the person of Jesus wonderfully exposes and corrects these lies and gives us matchless hope. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into the text for today. Lord, reveal your heart to us through your word, by your Holy Spirit, as we behold and worship the person of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, Luke 8, verses 40 through 56. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. Please follow along as I read. Luke 8, verses 40 through 56. It says, Now when Jesus returned, that is to Capernaum from the other side of the lake, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. By the way, isn't that last phrase a beautiful description of all of us? They were all waiting for Jesus to return. Love that. Verse 41. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him, she declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And they were all weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, Jesus called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned. And she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. This beautiful passage corrects three common lies that we are tempted to believe about God's heart toward us in our suffering. So let's consider these lies one at a time, beginning with lie number one. If you had true faith, you would never feel afraid. Notice again verse 45. Jesus said, who was it that touched me? Then look at the woman's response in verse 47. It says, and when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. Did you guys catch that last phrase there? She came to Jesus trembling. Clearly, this woman was afraid to answer Jesus' calling for her life, even to the point of trembling, but she still came to him. She still obeyed and answered his call. 
Now, how did Jesus respond to this woman's trembling faith? Look at what Jesus says in verse 48. Jesus said to her, how dare you tremble? You should never feel fear when doing scary things. You should never feel fear when taking a leap of faith. How dare you? Is that what your translations say as well? (laughs) Thank God, no. (sighs) Look at what Jesus actually says in verse 48. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Notice that Jesus does not condemn her trembling faith. He commends her trembling faith. And why is that? Well, it's because true faith is not the absence of fear. True faith is trusting God and obeying his calling even in the midst of our fears. It is not the absence of fear, but the presence of faith which God commends. This means that when you, when you take a step of faith, or you try to obey God, even in the midst of fear and anxiety, God is glorified, and he commends you for your faith. What lies are we tempted to believe about God, especially in suffering? Line number one, if you had true faith, you would never be afraid. Let's look at line number two. Line number two, and that is this. God is annoyed with you and with your constant neediness. Notice again verse 49. The messenger said to Jairus, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Now this word, trouble, this Greek word for trouble, it could also be translated as to annoy or to harass or to bother, as the NIV puts it. Actually, this Greek word, uh, which is um, skulo, it literally means to fillet, to fillet like skinning a fish, almost as if to say you are grating at Jesus by your constant neediness. You are annoying him. You're bothering him. You're harassing him. That's the connotation here. When we walk through seasons of suffering, we will be tempted to believe that Jesus is looking at us and saying, can you stop asking for help? I mean, if I were going to help you, I would have done it by now. Or, wait a minute, do you actually have the nerve to come to me for help after all of the sinning you've been doing? Or, wait, you are anxious and fearful again over this? How many times do I have to tell you to stop it, to cut it out? We think of God as having a constant heart disposition of annoyance or indignance toward us and our constant helplessness. But look at how Jesus responds in verse 50. It says, but Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Notice that even before Jesus heals Jairus' daughter, he wants to comfort Jairus' heart. And this is a beautiful window into Christ's heart for every suffering believer. 
Jesus' knee-jerk reaction towards you when you are suffering and anxious is not condemnation, but compassion. Not anger, but affection. I love how Dane Ortland put it. The same way that Jeff Frazier quotes C.S. Lewis every sermon, I try to quote Dane Ortland in every sermon. Uh, so just be ready for that. But I love how Dane Ortland put it. He says, 42 times in the Old Testament, it says God was provoked to anger. Exactly zero times, it says God had to be provoked to love. He says, if you were to prick God with a needle when he thinks about his children, which emotions would immediately and naturally spill out of him? Love, mercy, compassion, gentleness. God's love for his children needs no provoking. It is his natural heart disposition. This, of course, does not mean that God doesn't hate sin or that he won't faithfully discipline us when we do sin. He will do that. But God's discipline is never retributive to get back at us. It is always restorative to heal us. The heart of God toward his people revealed in Christ is not one of annoyance and condemnation, but affection and compassion. I don't have this in my manuscript, and I didn't plan on saying this, but maybe, just maybe, I wonder if the relationship between a parent and a child or a grandparent and a grandchild is a good way to think of God the Father's heart toward us. He loves us even when we fail. He loves us even when we're weak. His constant heart disposition is love and compassion for his children. What lies are we tempted to believe about God's heart toward us in our suffering? Lie number one, if you had true faith, you would never be afraid. Lie number two, God is annoyed with you and with your constant neediness. Third and finally, lie number three, maybe, just maybe, if you cleaned yourself up or if you weren't so sinful, then God would help you. One of the most important connections between the two women in this story is that they both would have been seen as extremely unclean in this culture. In fact, these would have been seen as two of the most unclean types of people in this culture. If anyone touched or even came near a bleeding woman or a dead body, that person would have been made themselves unclean. So most people would have looked at these two women and said, unclean, stay far away, don't go near. But notice that Jesus unreservedly draws near to both women. He heals the bleeding woman and calls her daughter, which is an endearing term for someone who would have been seen as an unclean outcast. But even more poignantly, look at how Jesus treats the daughter who had died in verse 54. A beautiful detail here that both Luke and Mark point out, by the way, because this must have been an unforgettable moment. Notice verse 54 taking her by the hand. He called, saying, child, arise. Think about this for a moment. Think about all of the ways that Jesus could have healed this young girl. He could have healed her from a mile away, as he does for someone else in the New Testament. He could have gone up to her bedroom door kept the door shut to stay at a safe distance, maybe put his shirt over his nose, and said, kind of knocking, if anyone's in there, rise up. 
Or perhaps he could have entered into her room with a hazmat suit, you know, to draw near, but not near enough to actually contact someone so unclean, so sinful, right? But Jesus didn't do any of those things. Instead, he, Jesus walked straight into her room. He likely knelt down beside her, and he took her by the hand, even in the midst of her uncleanness. While she was still profoundly unclean, Jesus drew profoundly near. He held her hand. And so Christ does for us, even in the midst of our uncleanness. Think about this. When we sin, when we sin and we feel the most unclean, and then we try to hold Jesus' hand again, he doesn't jerk back his hand and say, don't touch me. Actually, if someone tries to remove their hand after we sin, it's not Jesus. It's us shrinking back in shame. And yet, praise the Lord that Jesus says in John 10, 28, he says, no one, no one, not even us by our constant sinfulness and uncleanness can snatch my people from my hand. Jesus is a hand-holding Savior even when we are most unclean. And even when we feel like letting go of God in shame, God never lets go of us. Maybe my favorite passage in Scripture is Romans 5, 6 through 8. If you're looking for a life verse or a new verse to memorize, I commend Romans 5, 6 through 8 to you. Romans 5, 6 through 8, let's see if I can actually remember it now, is, for a while we were still weak, weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God is not waiting for us to get rid of all of our uncleanness before coming to him for help. God wants us to come to him in all of our weakness and all of our ungodliness and all of our sinfulness and all of our insecurities and all of our brokenness and all of our sorrow. He wants us to come to him with all of those things and he wants to hold our hand and help and heal us in the midst of that. What lies are we tempted to believe about God's heart toward us, especially in seasons of suffering? Lie number one, if you had true faith, you would never be afraid. Lie number two, God is annoyed with you and with your constant neediness. Lie number three, maybe, maybe if you cleaned yourself up or you weren't so sinful, then God would help you. Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, helps us identify and correct all of these lies about God's heart disposition toward his people. As we close, you might be thinking something like, I am thankful that Jesus Christ reveals God's true heart toward us. Praise the Lord for that. But I'm not going to lie. I am tired of my suffering. In fact, I am exhausted. I'm exhausted. 
by all of the pain and brokenness in this world. I don't only need Jesus to sympathize with my pain. I need him to come down and save me, save us from this pain and sin and brokenness in this world. And if that's you this morning, I want to say that this passage, this passage gives us mountains of hope, and it comes in one of the tiniest details. Let me ask you, did any of you happen to notice, did any of you happen to notice any curious connections between the two women in this story? So the bleeding woman and the dying daughter, any odd curious connections? And feel free to say it out loud if you happened to to see it. Twelve years. Yes, 12 years. Both characters had 12 years attached to them. The woman had been bleeding for 12 years, and the daughter was 12 years old. Now, why? Why this connection of 12 years? Or perhaps, why did Luke feel the need to include that detail? To be like, you know what? Readers need to know. They need to know that it was exactly 12 years for both people. If you have a guess, maybe whisper to the person next to you, but why? Why include that detail? I want to close this morning with a story about this little detail. <laughs> when, I was, when I first started studying this passage, I noticed, I noticed the 12 years connection, but I couldn't figure out what in the world it meant or if it had any significance. The commentaries I looked at didn't say much about it, so I thought, you know, maybe it's just a coincidence. And it got to the point that I literally asked uh, some of the middle schoolers at Access. <laughs> I said, what do you guys think these, this 12 years means? What's the significance? Because I have no idea. <laughs> I was clearly kind of desperate. But it wasn't until a couple weeks later that I was talking to someone else about this passage, and I mentioned this 12 years connection, and I said, what do you think it means? Why would Luke include this detail? And this person said something kind of profound that sort of blow, blew my mind and uh, that has been a source of encouragement to me ever since. This person said, well, isn't it interesting that we gasp both times we read the 12 years, but for opposite reasons? For the bleeding woman, 12 years was grievously long. For the dying daughter, 12 years was grievously short. And God acknowledges both forms of suffering in this story. It's almost as if the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to include these numbers in part to say to every suffering believer, I see you. I know your pain. I know your timeline. I know your joys are often short-lived and your sorrows feel unending. And I will not leave your pain unresolved. Jesus came to heal both kinds of suffering. 
every time you read a specific timeline of suffering in the Bible, so whether that's 12 years or 38 years or 40 years, God is reminding you that he knows every detail of your pain. He knows exactly how many days or years you've suffered. He even knows the exact number of tears that you've shed. Another beautiful verse is Psalm 56, verse 8, which says, you, Lord, have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in your bottle, are they not in your book? This I know, that God is for me. If you feel overwhelmed by sin and suffering today, Jesus wants to be a refuge for you. Jesus came, and he endured the most profound suffering on the cross for our sakes so that we, through faith in him, might experience eternal healing. I'm going to close us with a prayer now, and I invite all of you to join me in this prayer. And if you have not yet put faith in Jesus, I invite you to commit yourself to him through this prayer. Let the last day of 2023 be your first day of life with Christ. Join me now in this prayer. Lord, I need you. I cannot deal with my sin or my suffering on my own. Forgive me for running away from you for so long. Take me by the hand and save me, that I might follow you and rest in you all of my days. In Jesus' name, amen. Truly a joy to worship Christ with you all this morning. Uh, Now, let me give you the benediction as you go. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen.